To give somebody a place to live, to give them a home, is one of the most therapeutic, wonderful gifts you can ever give to someone. And now they don't have to worry about where they're sleeping tonight. Now they don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. They have a place to live. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. Welcome to part three of our multi-part series featuring the association's longtime CEO, Mike Bros, as he looks back on the history of the Mental Health Association. In this episode, Mike will share behind-the-scenes stories of the association's once controversial Yale Avenue apartments. Now people think it's a La Quinta. (laughs) He also shares the origin stories of our peer-run drop-in centers in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. And then Mike closes out the podcast talking about the association's statewide expansion in April 2014. Just real quick, to honor Mike's 27 years with the association and to support our ongoing statewide mission, please donate today at mhaok.org forward slash Mike Bros. Thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Okay, let's get this history lesson started. The mental health download starts now. So we've talked about Maxine and Jack Zero and Gail Richards and her family, Kip and the kids, their, their family. They've talked very publicly about they have a daughter with mental illness and they know what they went through. And they, that's one of the driving forces behind their involvement with Mental Health Association because they know what they've been through and they want to try to help other families. So that's always been that connection there. But then, of course, Ann and Henry Zero family and Judy Kishner and her brother and her kids and Mr. Henry uh, was alive at that time. And, and Judy began to really get more involved and began to really read a lot about they had been more involved in the sheltering with, of course, the Tulsa Day Center for many, many years, still are very involved with them. Judy got particularly interested in beginning to read things about housing. And if we were really going to end chronic homelessness, we had to develop affordable housing. So that really brought Gail Richards and, and Judy Kishner together. And then out of that, we hired again, once again, Capital Campaign, Nancy Atwater, Atwater Associates. And we had the, you know, we began to formulate the chair. Molly Williford was our chair of that campaign. And we went out and Gail and Judy really, though, did were the heart and the soul of that and really went out and tour after tour. And in those days, Matt, we used to, as a part of that tour, of course, many of the listeners here uh, that have been around a while will remember, we used to lease the third floor at the downtown YMCA. We had the third floor. We helped raise money, renovated it, got grant money. And that was where we opened our first safe haven. And I'm trying to remember, I think it was 25 single individual units. It was co-ed, people off the streets, mentally ill. And it was our first foray into truly a housing first model where you didn't tell people get clean and sober, get on medications, get cleaned up, and then we'll we'll help you find a place to live. No, we began to move people off the streets. That was really, we started getting into from clean, the clean and sober pure model to the harm reduction model because that harm reduction was very much a part of a housing first. You don't put up barriers, you take down barriers. And so if you put a clean and sober barrier up, most of these people off the streets will never get into your housing. And so that was our first four. And again, and like I've said earlier, we had no idea we were doing it. We didn't know what Housing First was until Dr. Sam Sumbaris, who really coined that term and really developed the model in New York City, came in at the at the our first house, national housing conference, the Zero Symposium, and presented. And we looked at each other and said, "Wow, that's that's how we're doing Housing First. We didn't know it." 
we are. And so then we begin to read and understand the terminology and the research begin to really pour forth. And so we begin to sell that when we talk to fund, potential funders. We talked about Housing First and people really got that. I mean, it was interesting. So Judy and Gail and I would take these people on a tour, on housing tours, and we would always intentionally, Matt, we'd take them to the downtown Y first. Now, man, our, our friends at the YMCA, we love them, uh, Susan Plank and the team over there. Susan's retired now, but she was a big partner. And of course, I'll, I'll talk a little more about in a second about the closing, the eventual closing of the Downtown Y. But the Downtown Y residence program and YMCAs had had these residence programs all, all over the country. Almost all YMCAs had transformed themselves. They were out of the housing business with a few exceptions around the country. We were at that time one. Most of them had long since closed. And the Ys are in the health club business and in the physical health and mental health and into family family, exercise, you know, life cooking, all lots of things that everybody knows about the knows of the YMCA, which is very important stuff. But got they really were trying to figure out how do we get out of this housing? And then the fire marshal, Tulsa Fire Marshal comes by and says to all the I understand if I remember correctly, like all the buildings over four stories, I could be wrong on that. In downtown Tulsa, they had to be sprinklered or they had to close. A lot of these of course were older buildings, all new buildings already come with all that. But they a lot of the older buildings they had 10 years. And Susan Plank used to meet with me regularly and say, Mike, what are we going to do? And I'd say, I don't know. So the, the date came. And again, we were raising money with the campaign and we were taking donors. And we'd always start them out to downtown Y, as I said earlier. And boy, the Y was great, but when we would show them the Y, they would almost always have the same reaction. Uh, of course, they were terrified to go in there with us. They, people, many, many people we took, they were scared to death, but we stuck close to them. There was nothing to fear, but they didn't know that. Uh, that was their perception that this is a scary place. and then, But they would say to us on the way out over and over again, I see now why you're having this campaign. Then we would take them over to the Altamont and show them the Altamont. Then we would drive them through by some of the scattered side apartments that we begin to own in. We'd take them to Walker Hall and show them what we were doing there. And we learned early on, these tours I'm talking about here, Matt, These we began to learn. And I really give Gail Richards all the credit. He said, she'd tell me, she told me at least for two years, Mike, we need to take people on a housing tour. And I don't think we really understood how important that was until something happened. And again, the downtown Y was going to close. And what are we going to do now? Not only our floor, Matt, uh, was there. There was like a uh, somewhere between 120, 30, and 150 people, men and women, living there. People had been living there. We did a lot of research with the with the residents and a lot of looking at the data and history with them. There were people who had lived with there over 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, five years, in a nine by 10 foot room with a bathroom down the hallway, it wasn't a appropriate place. And and the, the Y knew that. They just couldn't figure out how to how to figure out what to do. They didn't want to turn 150 people out on the street homeless, but yet they understood this isn't our mission anymore and we got to figure out. And so along comes Gail and Judy. They won't mind if I say this. They, I don't know if this is lore or or it's an actual true story, but they claimed they were having dinner one night talking about it. And they had a couple of glasses of wine. Remember I told you Mac and I, and Mac came up with the idea of a capital campaign after a couple of glasses of wine. But Judy and Gail, they said, well, we had we had a couple of glasses of wine and suddenly said, well, the wine's got to close. What are we going to do? Well, what about you and I going out and raise the money and to replace the downtown Y? And thus the, that campaign was born. We were able to secure some uh, funding in those days, believe it or not, allocations from the state legislature. Two years in a row, we got two million one year, two million the next year. 
the state can't give money cash to a non to a nonprofit. They can they can contract with a nonprofit, but they can't give money. So we had to needed a partner, and that was the, the the partnership that developed with the Tulsa Housing Authority. And again, shout out to Ruth Nelson, and she was wonderful, and Ladina, and uh, all the people over at the Tulsa Housing Authority. Because they're a quasi-government agency, they could receive this money. So we developed an LLC together, and then we began to raise money, look for property, and we looked at different properties. We looked at property over in the Pearl District, and we really were interested in a piece of property there, which is actually where the, now the Quick Trip there at 11th and, and, and Utica sits. And then we found a piece of property out at, at that time, it was known as 10 North Yale. Actually, it turned out that wasn't the right address, but 10 North Yale is what it got to be eventually known by in the media. And so because the Housing Authority was our partner, we discovered we had to get approval from Tulsa City Council to build on that property to what we were proposing. Again, what we're building, 76-unit apartment complex, which is now known, of course, as the Yale Apartments. And, And so anyway, that needed to be posted. And then that's when something happened and in the literature and uh, talked, I've talked to people who've been through this around the country, this thing called NIMBY. What is that? What does that stand for? NIMBY, not in my backyard. And NIMBY is a problem all over. And I, I never criticized anybody who had that position because I said, if you, if we're totally honest with ourselves, there's a little bit of NIMBY somewhere inside all of us. And it just depends on what the situation is. But in this case, we knew that these individuals were no threat to these neighborhoods. But these neighborhoods, there are three neighborhoods in the area there near 10 North Yale or Admiral and Yale, if you will who began to really, really fight against us and city council, lobby city council against the uh, permit to be let so we could build the uh, what now are the Yale apartments at that location. And man, I'd never been, we had never, and as I remember in the previous episodes, we would buy properties and people could live there by right. But because we had to get city council approval on this particular project because of the partnership with the Tulsa Housing Authority, it had to be obviously publicly printed and published about what our intentions were on the use of that. Uh, people heard about it, the word spread, internet, phones, email, and and then in a, a very, very difficult opposition. And it was a very famous night, Matt. It was a night where we had at the city council meeting and walk in there and there was like six of us, Ruth and Gail and Judy and me and Bill Packard and Greg. And, and I'll never forget, Matt, there was a, we took a young woman who was one of our residents in Walker Hall with us we thought maybe there might be an opportunity for her to get up and talk and and share what the housing had done for her. In the end, it was so ugly, so hateful, horrible things were said. And I'll never forget, Matt, this little young woman turned to me. And after hearing people get up and say things, she turned to me and said, is that what they think of me? And that was very, very painful to hear that. And she was deeply hurt by that. And it affected her in a not healthy way for a really a long time. She was so excited and so proud of what she had accomplished in that. So we really began to deal with the NIMBY there. And in the end, it got so angst, we actually had to hire a civil rights attorney. And we hired uh, Lewis Bullock help help us with that. And of course, Lewis is an iconic a, a civil rights attorney here in Oklahoma. And by the way, a great guy and loved every minute working with Lewis. And he's just a, a, a gentleman and a scholar and just an, a joy to work with and believes in his core to his very soul, the importance of, of people and the their ha- having, making sure that their civil rights are protected. 
So it got very cantankerous. And that was when, like I say, Gail, Gail Richards said, we need to give tours. And and here was the interesting thing, Matt. We began to give tours and on the housing tours and to show people what we were doing to, tr- to fight back against this NIMBY battle. And most of the people who we took on tours were people we knew already and with a few exceptions. And it was interesting. One of the comments I heard several times, people said, well, I knew what you guys were doing was good, but until I've actually seen it, I had no idea how good. I want to do a shout out to McElroy Manufacturing. They were very supportive and wonderful family. We took them on a tour. They have a factory down the street. They came out on a tour and they said, hey, we're all in on this. It's a good thing. Because that the whole NIMBY thing, and yes, we did overcome, but the media was all over because it was done in a public way with the public hearing, the city council. I mean, I had literally, I mean, I'm not making exaggerating. I had TV stations and, and print media lined up outside my office waiting to get in to interview me. It was tough. It was our tough times. And by the way, but, but there's always a silver lining, Matt. One of the things in talking to Wayne Green and the editorial board of the Tulsa World at that time, they said, I said, well, in this whole controversy, what if I came by and picked you guys up and took you on a housing tour. And they said, we would love that. And I pulled the van up and the door opens there at the Tulsa World and the entire editorial board comes on out of the building and gets on the van with me. Now, how do you how do you get that? And sometimes it takes controversy and difficulties to be able to get that. But I took them on this very extensive housing tour. And then subsequently, they wrote very supportive articles about what we were doing. And that helped us also help raise money because it educated people about what we were doing. And they liked it and they wanted to be a part of it. Those tours, uh, Matt, were became this tool that we still use today to really educate people. And, and of course, then and now, when I take people out to the Yale apartments, there's several things that I do when I pull in on those tours. I'll pull into the parking lot. And again, Yale apartments was the only new construction we've ever done. All of our other apartments were all acquisition in light to moderate rehab. We did do one acquisition with major rehab, but but that was always our model. And it's and we do people say, well. Why don't you build more Yale apartments? Well, one is you learn if you're in the, doing anything construction like that, any new construction is uh, wildly expensive. It needed to be done here because the downtown Y was going to close and there was no place for 150 people to go. So we moved a lot of people out into scattered side housing, but we still needed those 76 apartments at the Yale apartment to really absorb the, the majority of those people who were living and had lived at the downtown YMCA for many, many years. But one of the things I always do on that tour is when I pull into the the parking lot, I always stop and I tell the people I'm taking around, I say, now, I want you to look around at this parking lot. I said, how many cars do you see here? And they look around, they'll say, well, not very many. And I'll say, well, that's because our residents don't have automobiles. Very a few do. And most of the cars in the parking lot, I said, those are staff. And so I really try to help people understand, again, things that we take for granted, uh, a car that I can go out in my driveway right now and get in and go wherever I want to go. But pe- there's a whole group of people out there who can't do that. They're dependent on public transportation, getting a ride from someone or walking or riding a bike or a scooter or something, it's just really hard for those people to really have full participation in the economic opportunities that the community can can offer. And I think it's important for people to know that. The other thing is I show them on the tour, I say, look around over here and these businesses, I won't mention the businesses, but but businesses right around there. And they had been on, the, I said earlier about the NIMBY, they had been on TV and, and, and you know, 
three to name in particular. We don't want this in our neighborhood. We need to give up our lease. We won't be able to make a living. Nobody will want to come here anymore. You know, nobody will. We just won't get any customers. And we'll have people uh, swimming in our pond, taking a bath in our pond, and saying things like this on the media, which we had, of course, refute. But then those businesses began to see that we, we're an economic driver, Matt. Uh, I think people lose that side of that. We buy products. We spend money. We hire people. We have all kinds of contractors that work for us. We are a huge economic driver in the community. And I think that gets lost on some of the people who don't really fully understand what we're doing. Last piece of that story I'll tell about it, Matt, was before when we first got it built and open, we didn't have our Yale apartment sign up for a while. And that and people would the staff there at the desk would tell me almost every single night, at least one person or family would roll in with their suitcases trying to rent a room from us, thinking it was a hotel. And I had many, many over the years people say, well, that's a La Quinta, isn't it? Or I thought that was a, a Holiday Inn Express, one of those types of moderate size, nice motels. In the Yale apartments, uh, of course, now are people who have come from all over the country to see the Yale apartments, to tour the Yale apartments, and see what we've been able to do there. And again, there are many, many donors contributed to that, but Gail Richards and Judy Kishner in particular and their families were a huge driving force to be able to help us to do that. Those tours, they just they speak to the, they're, they, they're very powerful. People will say to me, or they'll say to other people, they'll say, I can't believe the head took me out, took me around. And, and I was really amazed how many of the residents knew him. Well, of course they know me. They don't all know me, and I don't know all of them, but I know a lot of them. A lot of them have been, we have worked with them for years, decades even. Why wouldn't I know them and their families as well as we is? And I think that's an important part of this story, Matt. Again, we always talk about it's there's no us and them there's just us the the people who are residents in our housing are every bit as a part of our mental health association family as the staff is or volunteers or board members are we are a community we are a family and we're all related to each other in some ways we're all here for a common purpose and that's a better higher quality of life for ourselves and our families we all have that and we share that as our is our general connectedness to each other in, the, in building a community that where everyone is welcome and has a place in the community. So that's what this is about. housing is really, really all about. And so ultimately, the city council voted by, I think, as I remember, it passed by one vote. Two city councilors who voted yes, Matt, eventually lost their seats and their opponents ran on that vote and they lost their seats. One of them regained it, David Patrick, but the other city councilor at that time didn't run again. But he, he, we've always thanked them many, many times over. It passed and we were able to move forward. And then eventually we began to make amends and bring healing between the three neighborhoods that opposed the building of the Yale apartments in the Mental Health Association and our partners and what we were doing. And, I, and I'm really happy to announce today that that's in the past. We have a great relationship with our neighbors there. They're proud of the property. Our residents have volunteered there in some of the faith communities. And I want to do a shout out to the faith communities in that area. I won't mention them by name, but they were really instrumental of turning the tide to helping their neighbors look at a little more of a compassionate, I'll say, I'll use this term, God-fearing, you know, but by the grace of God, there go I sort of mentality. And I, I really want to always indebted to those faith communities there in White City, those neighborhoods. 
they were very instrumental in helping us kind of win some of the more hesitant neighbors in that area over to what we were doing. So it did pass and we were able to build construction. And when, again, as we're taking, the, we're giving these tours, Matt, and people were really amazed. And one of the two things in the tours, we used to take people to Altamont, you know, Gail and Judy, Judy Kishner, Gail Richards and me, we would take them to Altamont. And there was a resident there I want to do a shout out to about, he's gone, passed away. Johnny Fagans was his name, and many people listening will remember Johnny was an incredible, incredible. Some people would call him a painter. He was a professional painter, but he was an artist in terms of could literally take a piece of wood and turned it into using a technique that he had learned in New York and brought back to Oklahoma. He could literally take a piece of wood and turn it into with a I don't really, I have to be careful. I, I'm not an artist, but it would look like a piece of marble and it would, it was, it would fool you every time. And, and we would show people. And that was the way to begin to show people on the tour we were trying to encourage to donate to the campaign that these people are smart. They have talent. They have dignity. They're, they have a mental illness and they've struggled sometimes with substance abuse. And Johnny was someone who was really able to really represent that. And they would see his smile and his personality and they would leave there with a smile. And people all over would ask me, how's Johnny doing? Johnny, wherever you are, we're thinking about you, dude, and we know you're thinking about us. But there was a lot of people in those tours in those days, and we took people around. But again, I can't say enough about Judy and Gail. They were, I mean, we, I enjoyed, that was such a treat being able to spend time with those two incredible, iconic women in this community. And, and we raised a lot of money to be able to do it. And then we began to really buy a lot of property. And then Judy's foundation got really involved, and we bought later on bought more, even more property. 500 units. Oh my gosh, what are we doing? 750? What are we doing? Oh, a thousand. We don't want any more than that. And here we are today, 1500 units, 17 different neighborhoods scattered all over. I still give the tours, by the way, and people still get one over. And we learned a long time ago through those early tours, we had this epiphany, Matt, and we it dawned on us. We all looked at each other and we said, wow, we know what we're doing. And we know how powerful and how important it is. And we've assumed that our supporters, financial givers, as well as just people support us in any way they can, we we assumed that they understood what we were doing in this housing thing. But what we can't really realize is that unless you see it and take the time to go out and look at the properties and meet the people, be introduced to the staff, to be introduced to some of the residents, let the residents take you on the tour. That's what I always enjoy is let the residents show people around, show them their apartments, what have you. Oh, I mean, people just, I think everybody, Matt, can relate to that. To give somebody a place to live, to give them a home is one of the most therapeutic, wonderful gifts you can ever give to someone. And now they don't have to worry about where they're sleeping tonight. Now they don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. They have a place to live. Then they can begin to work on other rungs of Maslow's need hierarchy. And we see that all the time, improving their health care, improving their mental health care, addressing any addiction issues, their physical appearance. And then they get into what about work? What about a job? I'd like to work or, or volunteer. And they begin to stabilize and they get to be back to where we all want is a safe, affordable, decent place to live. 
So then, Matt, there's a then there was a, some things began to happen, and we had known for a long time ago. A matter of fact, Matt, I don't know if you know this part of the story, but when I first came to the Mental Health Association back in '93, the board at that time told me they wanted to have what a drop-in center in the whole model of the drop-in center model. I didn't know what they were talking about. I had no idea. And they wanted it in the basement of the of the old uh, Boulder office. That's what they told me. Of course, in 94, as I mentioned earlier about the flood we had, the microburst, the 15 feet of water in the basement, that whole kind of argument went out the door. It was kind of forgotten about, put on the shelf. I never forgot it. But, but suddenly, the Oklahoma State Department of Mental Health and Substance Services had some money that was designed for, for people to put in an RFP. For those of you who don't know, that's a request for proposals, a grant application, if you will, to, to potentially have a drop-in center. As I remember, there were three years that we looked at the RFP, and the first year we looked at it, and we just couldn't make the numbers work, and we didn't apply. And it came out again the next year. Again, we ran all the numbers, which is how we work. And the numbers didn't add up. And so we didn't do it. Well, the departmental health kept tweaking it a little bit. The third year that came out, the drop-in center numbers suddenly added up. And then we got site control over what is now at the Denver house. And we owned that already and had site control, which is one of the things you had to have to have your, your drop-in center. And we applied and it was funded. And it's a peer-run, peer-led drop-in center. And that mean, what does that mean? That means that everybody who works there lives in recovery from the thing, one or more of the things I talked about early, many times mental, serious mental illness. And so, so it's a peer to peer, peer run, peer led, managed drop in center there, Denver house. And so we opened that up and, and I, I don't know what I thought. I know Mark Davis and I visited some drop in centers. We went, he went to, he visited some all over. I, he and I together went to and visited one in Baltimore, Maryland and saw that. And we could kind of see there's a drop in center model but they were all that we looked at were all unique and different. And ours is very much the same. It's unique and different. And of course, now the Lottie House over in Oklahoma City drop-in center, even though it's a drop-in center, it's unique and different from a Denver house. They, and we all know that, but they still would serve an incredibly important service to individuals and their families into the whole community. But the Denver house, so we opened that up and had the drop-in center. And I, I kind of thought that it would take months to build up a clientele. So anyway, I know that Max Parker, I want to do a shout out to Max. Max was our first Max was our first coordinator and Max had come back and moved back from back east. He was a Tulsa kid, moved back and lived in recovery and he heard about we and he had worked in a drop-in center in Baltimore, a different one than one that Mark and I visited, another one. And he said, "Hey, I'm moving back and I'd really like to apply for to be the coordinator." Max, of course, eventually became for the, I want to say the first eight years, the drop-in center. I could be wrong on those years, but he was the coordinator, did a fabulous job. And we owe Max and his family and his dad, Jody, their family, an incredible amount of gratitude, not only financial support, but, but also just emotional support, but also they gave us Max. And Max was an incredible employee, and even now to this day serves on our board of directors. So we opened up the Denver House Drop-in Center, and then it was from the day it opened, and I saw Max one day. It had been open about a week or two weeks, maybe. And I said, "Hey, well, how's it going? How's it going over there?" And he goes, "Oh, it's going great." I said, "Oh, really?" I said, "How many people are you having today?" He goes, "Oh, about 60. And I'm like, 60? What are you talking about? We just been open." Oh, I thought it'd take us a year to build up a real strong clientele. He goes, "Oh, yeah, we we're having about 60 people a day." And I was like, "What is going on?" And so I went over there, and what I discovered, bless her heart. 
most people don't know, other than at the Tulsa Day Center, when the shelters are finished in the morning, they turn out. And so people that are homeless, they have nowhere to go other than they can go to the Tulsa Day Center. Some choose not to, or some, but, or they, but otherwise they're just not wandering around. And so they have nowhere to go. They're waiting until, you know, I was called Groundhog Day, and they have to go and get in line again and start all over to try to get into a shelter so they're not sleeping out on the streets that night to come, which many times they had to sleep out on the streets uh, because they couldn't get in. There wasn't, they didn't get there in time, or there, a lot of times there just wasn't enough space. So a lot of the homeless individuals began to come down to the Denver house, and which we welcomed. We were like, great. And so we began to link people up there. Uh, of course, a drop-in center, we bring our mobile medical intervention team, which well, I think we're going to maybe talk a little bit about in episode four, but we began to bring them in. We, we bring in other outside providers. We bring in education. We have translation services. And of course, we, we have our partnership with Legal Aid of Oklahoma, Carol Beatty, our lovely attorney that comes over. And of course, our first attorney that worked with us there, an old uh, venture grant, was uh, Greg Shin's wife, Margaret. But Carol does a great job. But anyway, the drop-in centers become like a hub. Then the Departmental Health put out another RFP for another drop-in center. They said, we love that one we're funding over in Tulsa. Hey, we want one over in Oklahoma City. So they put out an RFP in Oklahoma City to open another one. And so we do the pro- the old programs committee. I think we would call that recovery services committee now, but in the old days, we used to call it programs committee. They looked at this and staff, senior staff and volunteers looked at the RFP in Oklahoma City again, a couple of years. And, it, you know, is this really what we want to do? I mean, we had a lot on our plate here in Tulsa. Do we really want to go statewide? And But eventually, at the much, we had some very, very aggressive volunteers who felt like that was very important for us to look at doing. And I really thank them for that. And they began to continue to push us. So eventually, the board approved us to apply for that RFP. And lo and behold, and we had, of course, we'd worked out where site control is, which is the current location of what now is called the Lottie House. They're on Lottie, uh, near the old Department of Mental Health and Subdue Services offices that are now closed at that location. And so oh, Lottie, uh, Lottie House opened, and suddenly we were doing a business in Oklahoma City, and we knew we didn't want to do it as a mental health association in Tulsa. It wasn't appropriate. So we applied to the Oklahoma Secretary of State, and we're eventually, it took a while, but we eventually granted that we could DBA to doing business as Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. And so that was a big thing for us to be in the Oklahoma City market. I mean, Tulsa and Oklahoma City, it's no no surprise. Nobody, everybody knows our listeners, wherever they're at. There's this, this thing, which we hope we're doing our part to, you know, get rid of the thing between Oklahoma City and Tulsa, not to be competitors, to be, but to really help and enhance each other and grow, help grow the all, both metro areas as well as the whole whole of the whole state. So, and so, but that was a big point of, you know, you can't come over here and operate and be mental health association in Tulsa. And we knew that we totally agreed with that. And we eventually though, were able to, and that's how we got into Oklahoma city market. And that's how we became from mental health association in Tulsa, which is our, still our legal name, but we do be DBA doing business as mental health association, Oklahoma. That was a big deal for our friends in Oklahoma city. And we got it. We understood that we, we totally agreed with them about that. So now we're over there. And and then, of course, uh, we were in the drop-in center and we really thought, this is it. We'll have this. We'll go about our business quietly. And then suddenly the United Way of Central Oklahoma called and tell us that the Mental Health Association of Central Oklahoma was going to have to close their doors, that the funding was going to end. 
Randy Macon called me. Many listeners know Randy. I just was on a Zoom call with him in his class he teaches just the other night, as a matter of fact. But Randy, at the time, uh, was with United Way of Central Oklahoma. We had known him when he used to work in Tulsa with uh, Schusterman Foundation and then later with the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences. But he had moved to Oklahoma City, became Debbie Hampton's right-hand person there uh, at the United Way of Central Oklahoma, called us up and said, hey, it looks like the uh, Mental Health Association of Central Oklahoma is going to close their door. We fund two programs that you guys also operate. Would you be willing to come over here and operate those two programs? And wow. But because of what happened, Matt, was because of all of the work we had preliminary working and vetting and arguing and looking at the move to the drop-in center application, RFP, to Oklahoma City to actually be working there because we had already done that. I'll never forget, we had a meeting. Randy called me like the next day or the day after. We had a meeting. He was over representing the United Way of Central Oklahoma. Tulsa United Way had a representative there. Our senior board leadership, our senior management group, and in an out, really in an hour and a half meeting, the decision was made. We were going to take over that lease of the building there in Oklahoma City, and we would operate those two programs, Sunbridge and TeamStream, which we also do here in Tulsa. We would run those in Oklahoma City too, and so thus there was born. We were now operating. Of course, we had a lease building which I didn't care for at the time, and we now, of course, have our wonderful storefront building at 400 North Walker there in Oklahoma. Oklahoma City. We love that location. And now we have our Lottie house there too. And now we're, we're, we're partner agency with the United Way of Central Oklahoma. We have lots of friends there. We have lots of supporters there. Our friend Dan Strong over at Homeless Alliance and all of our friends over at West Town. Man, it's a great thing over there. We love Oklahoma City. We love, we love it that we're both Oklahoma City and Tulsa, Matt. We think that's the future and it needs to be a future, not not just businesses and law firms. They they do that because they want to be- develop businesses into new markets. But I think that it's also good for nonprofits, whether they're in both cities, operate in both cities, or they just take the time to get to know each other better. It is a tale of two cities, and but it's been a wonderful experience to meet all these wonderful people in Oklahoma City. We're, I always say we're all of really the same DNA and we're all related. We're all Oklahomans. So it's been really marvelous to be able to, to do that. And, and so thus then, Lottie House, Denver House, Pier Run, drop-in centers were now open. Even though COVID-19 has not been friendly to them, they're still operating in a modified way. And we'll get back to all that, all that uh, a drop-in center can and should be in time. But for right now, we're doing things in a way that's extra safe, but the the drop-in centers are definitely open for business and seeing people. It's just been an incredible honor, man. We did a lot of amazing things, and and we did it together. I got a lot of attention, but it wasn't me. It was we, the community, the organization, our volunteers, families in the community, supporters in every way. We did it as a community to bring us to where we are today. And uh, it's been such an honor to, in my career to have been a part of all that. And just, I mean, it's just unbelievable to, to be a part of something like that. And I thank God every day for that opportunity.